Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. Stay tuned for today's episode. Eric Becker is the co-founder and co-chairman of Crescent, an award-winning multifamily office with over $30 billion assets under management. Alongside co-founder and co-chairman Abby Stein, Eric was one of Crescent's first two clients. He shares his extensive experience to advise founders, entrepreneurs, private equity partners, and ultra high net worth families, in addition to serving on the firm's leadership team. Eric has a long history of starting, backing, and nurturing companies. Prior to Crescent, Eric co-founded Sterling Partners in 1983, a value-add growth private equity firm that raised eight funds with over $5.7 billion of capital. At Sterling, Eric served for 32 years as Senior Managing Director and Co-Chairman of the Operating Committee. Well, I'm thrilled to have Eric Becker today. Um, Eric, I've followed your career from afar for many, many years and recently for much closer. Um, and you've really done extraordinarily well. And there's a lot I want to unpack in this um, podcast because you've lived a pretty remarkable life. Um, I guess the first question, I guess, to start would be, Go over your a little bit about your background. Um, just how did you get you graduated from college, and then what? How do you how did you get from you graduating college to where you are today? Well, actually, we have to make a correction there. I dropped out of college one semester before graduation, um, so that's actually part of the story. I grew up in Baltimore um, from humble beginnings. My uh, my dad was the first one in our family to go to college, and he went to University of Maryland. And, and my dad had that entrepreneurial spirit um, that that has been a thread in my life as well. Um, he hired his fraternity brothers to dress up like Santa Claus, and he would rent them out to department stores like a rent-a-Santa business, and that's how he paid his way through school. But what's a really awesome part of the story is, as only could happen in America, department stores became shopping centers, became the big malls. And my dad, this kid from Baltimore, became the, the king of Christmas in America um, and had that company for 53 years. So uh, that was the origins, the entrepreneurial origins of the family. I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had all the benefits of the next generation. I went to University of Chicago, studied economics, and I had this great um, fortune of reading about Larry Levy, a wonderful Chicago entrepreneur, real estate developer in Forbes magazine, and was able to uh, cold call and get an appointment and take a business plan that I had written at 19 years old and meet with him. And it was just an amazing thing because he looked at this business plan, smiled, said it's not that often in 1981 that you get a business plan from a 19-year-old. So... Um, Usually I hire MBA students as my interns. I'll take a chance on you and bring you in as an, as an intern. And I had the great uh, opportunity and good fortune to work as an intern for directly for Larry Levy. What um, was the business? So back then, his, he had two businesses, uh, a large real estate development firm in Chicago. He was working on White Magnificent Mile right at Michigan and Oak Street. And then he had a wonderful um, restaurant business in Water Tower Place and other locations around Chicago. 
And what was your business that you wanted to, that you were going to bring to him? The business plan was for a greeting card store. So back in those days, the only greeting card stores in the early 80s really were Hallmark stores. And I thought there was room for an independent movement to create more creative cards and, and that would be appealing to a wide, wider variety of people and interests and humor. Um, and he thought it was a, a creative idea, uh, enough of a good idea to, to get hired. Um, and, um, and one thing that is an amazing uh, story from that internship is that at 19 years old, I went in for my first day and Larry Levy said, please go to this room where I have all the drawings for these buildings and one magnificent mile. And I want you to bring me a map of this location I'm working on. I went into the room back then before digital, everything was in little cubby holes. I went up and down couldn't find these documents and looked twice, think I was very thorough, went back in and said, Mr. Levy, I'm so sorry. I checked that room twice and there's there's no map there. Uh, what do I do? And he said, without hesitation, I was looking for a map, not an excuse for a map. I don't care if you have to go to Michigan Avenue to back then the Red McNally store and buy a map or mm -hmm. call my architect and have him send another copy. Bring me solutions. Don't bring me problems. And it was an amazing learning for a 19-year-old, something I've never forgotten. All right. So you're starting off your business career with a legendary entrepreneur. And, and I know Larry quite well. He's done phenomenally well. Um, what happened after that? So uh, while I was working for him and working on school, my younger brother had an idea for an optical memory card where you could store up to 800 pages of medical history on a credit card. He was 18 and a senior in high school, called me up, said, I have this idea. Can you write a business plan? I knew now how to write a business plan from having worked for Larry. And I even had a book back then called How to Write a Business Plan, literally. Um, so I wrote a business plan for that, showed it to Larry Levy, who offered to back us, which was a huge bet on a high school senior and a college kid who was thinking about dropping out to start this business. And he suggested that we go and talk to a customer before bringing in any investors. So we went to Blue Cross Blue Shield. They loved the idea. They said, you don't need any investors. We'll back you. And I dropped out of University of Chicago one semester before graduation. And my brother deferred from Harvard. Um, and we started this company that became an important uh, company at the time because it was not only the first uh, digital technology for medical records, but it was also the first technology to adjudicate medical claims um, using computers. So before that, doctors would take all their claims on paper and put them into boxes and send them into insurance companies. And the processing was, was crazy. So this was a, it was a big deal. And when we launched this, it was actually on the front page of the New York times, um, which for, uh, again, for someone who had dropped out of university of Chicago, a semester for graduation. And for a kid who was a high school senior, it was uh, pretty amazing. So what was that phone call? Like we call mom and dad and say, I'm at university of Chicago. I'm dropping out. Cause I'm going to start a business with my younger brother. Who's in high school. So my dad, who, as I mentioned, was the first one to go to college, thought the family was going backwards and that I was a bad influence on my younger brother, getting him to defer from Harvard. And so uh, my dad, I asked for his blessing because family relations, we were always close. And my father said, if you want my blessing, you need to go and discuss this with Dr. Logue. And I said, who is Dr. Logue? And he said, he is a psychiatrist. So I went to see the psychiatrist and uh, with the couch, I mean, everything you can imagine. And at the end of my session, as God is my witness, he said, are you looking for investors? 
Um, I basically, during the whole session, I just kept saying, if this doesn't work out, I'm 20, 21 years old, I'll just go back to school and finish. It's not a big deal. I don't understand all the upset about this. And so I sort of went through my pitch. And at the end, he wanted to invest. That's when I knew this would all work out. All right. So that's remarkable. So you you start a company with your younger brother who's in high school. You don't quite graduate college. And then how long did it take the company to take off and then kind of walk me through you know, it took off within, within a year. Um, there were two other co-founders, uh, one a high school classmate of mine who I'd known since the eighth grade, and then uh, a friend of mine from Chicago. So the four of us launched this business, um, and uh, and it took off within a year. And then a year later, we sold the business to Blue Cross Blue Shield. So had our first exit uh, from an entrepreneurial venture at a very, very young and immature age. Um, and, uh, it was a great, and it was great. And, and my brother and I had given our parents, uh, who were divorced at the time, each a small piece of the business for, um, about $15,000, I think of seed capital that they provided. And it was really a proud moment when our mom and dad were able to pay off their mortgages, uh, at, wow. the, sale of the, at the sale of the business. That's great. So you're young, you do have an exit, um, you're dealing with probably more money than most, if not all of your friends, um, then what? So, um, of course, relating it to what I do now, um, what, uh, what, what, what do you think a, uh, let's call it, my brother might've been 20, 21 by then. What does a 20 year old and say his 23 year old brother do on the day that they sell their business, um, back in say 19, you know, 80, 85 or whatever it was. Um, the answer is they go to the Mercedes, and Porsche dealership and they buy cars. So um, rather than doing sound financial planning um, and all the things that uh, that I tell others to do now, and of course have learned through the subsequent 40 years of life, um, we didn't have we didn't have access. We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't have access to to great advice. We didn't have any of that. So we um, so we did what what two children would do, and we went out and bought a couple of cars. That's great. And then you started uh, you started the private equity firm, right? After that, started a private equity firm um, with the same group. So with my brother and the and the two other friends, um, started what was Sterling Partners. Um, grew that for um, almost thirty years, and and I loved that. Um, we particularly specialized in um, healthcare services, education. Um, we had a wonderful business at one time called Sylvan Learning Centers, which was a tutoring business for kids. Um, and then later in my career, we moved into areas like e-commerce logistics, um, cloud infrastructure, which included data centers. So it was uh, for someone who's always been curious and always interested in learning, um, loves figuring out business models and best practices for um, talent and developing leadership and finding leadership. You know, this was an amazing opportunity um, and, and really a lot of fun for many, many years. The the thing about life is that um, you, you don't always get to go where you'd like to go. And so um, in 2012, um, after wonderful, you know, call it 30 years of doing that, um, my wife, Jill, we had three kids, two boys, wonderful daughter, Kara in the middle. And uh, Kara was 21 years old. And that summer, she had a summer job and we heard that she had developed leukemia. So we took her to Johns Hopkins. Um, we're told that we were the luckiest family there. She had the only form of curable leukemia in 2012, and they had a 90% cure rate. So we were really optimistic, and everyone rallied together to make this a success. 
And then sadly and tragically, she passed away four months later, unexpectedly from the side effects of her treatment. So, um, you know, the thing about being an entrepreneur and from 1983 until I basically retired after Kara passed away, I was involved in give or take a hundred different kinds of companies, minority investments, majority investments, starting businesses. And in order to be an entrepreneur, you and your listeners know that you have to be a great problem solver. It's like the number one job of an entrepreneur is to be a great problem solver and probably as a parent too. And so it was uh, absolutely heartbreaking and a struggle uh, to have wrestled with this idea of an unsolvable problem or one that we couldn't uh, be successful with. So I retired from the business, wasn't easy, um, took a couple of years and dedicated my wife, Jill, and I dedicated our lives to service at that point. Um, didn't really want to work in a traditional sense. And so we focused in on two areas. One was helping kids to do service for others. And so supporting uh, volunteerism, um, helping kids uh, from the ages of 12 to 18 to do service in their communities, funding service projects up to $1,000 for any child in the United States they could apply online on a quarterly basis. And that was wonderful. And then the other area we focused in on was supporting uh, and fostering entrepreneurship. I thought entrepreneurship, every business I ever invested in, started or bought, there was an entrepreneurial element and an entrepreneur who started it. And I also think that entrepreneurship is an amazing framework for problem solving, for um, for leadership, um, for creating projects and making things happen. So those were our two areas of focus. And the amazing thing about that time is that after focusing our energies on, let's call it good karma, uh, maybe a year and a half later, I felt a lot better about things and, and wanted to get back into investing again, um, which then opened the door to the next to the next chapter. All right. And then walk me through the next chapter. So at that point, I was, uh, I thought I'll start with my own family office and see uh, where that takes us. And I had shared a family office with my brother and the other two partners for 15 plus years, but I had not paid much attention to it. So job one, go pay attention to it. And the first realization was I was a terrible client. I really had not focused uh, much energy on this. And I think that this is actually a theme that we see with entrepreneurs and CEO founders. And that theme is that the cobbler's children have no clothes. You're so focused. If you're if you're good at it, you're focused in on your customers, your team, your shareholders. And once you have that all in place, if you have a family, hopefully you're focused on your family. And once that's all in place, you want to be a good citizen. So hopefully with some extra time, you contribute in your community in some positive way. There just isn't enough time after all of that to really dig into financial planning and estate tax and things that really need to get done. But I think that it's probably a crisis in terms of the numbers of people that just don't get to it, or if they do, they're not keeping these plans um, up, to, up to date. So I really was no different. When I came back and looked at it after a lifetime of work, after a career, I was disappointed, but I really felt that I owned it. I had not been engaged um, and I had a lot of work to do. And what I also learned about the family office that I had, it was mostly focused on back office activities. So reporting, um, great support for estate tax planning, 
tax preparation and tax compliance, um, but there wasn't what I would call an origination engine, the ability to go out and develop an investment thesis and then originate, underwrite, diligence and manage uh, a portfolio of, of investments, particularly private investments, which was a passion of mine in an area where I'd spent much of my career. So that was a big learning. And so I thought I'll just start it myself, the origination engine, go out and source opportunities. And my dear friend, Abby Stein, who's from Chicago, and we never actually worked together in Chicago. We met actually in Florida at a wonderful place called Admiral's Cove. We were talking one day about this and Abby said, I'd like to do this together. I'd like to, let, you know, let's see what you come up with. Let's look at these investments, this origination engine. So we started looking at uh, deals and private equity direct. We called it families investing in family businesses. And then we also started looking at income producing real estate. And I put together two small teams to go out and pursue those. And it was working really well. And uh, next thing you know, other family offices wanted to co-invest. It was growing. And one day as it was growing, Avi and I were talking about our experiences with the wealth management side of things. And he had been the client of a large wirehouse on Wall Street. I'd been a client of one as well for 25 years, a part of a, a private bank of one of the big Wall Street firms. And we both had had less than stellar experiences. Um, and we felt that it just could be so much better. We sort of looked at the state of the world and the state of things and said, there has to be something better. Let's go out and research and see if we can find what that is. So we took a year and, and some of the young team members that have been working on the origination engine, sourcing uh, these deals that we were investing in, and they started looking for firms that we could become a client of. So multifamily offices, other private banks, other types of uh, boutique investment firms. We really started talking to uh, as many of them as possible, doing research, trying to find out what's out there. And it was fascinating. I think at the beginning, the big surprise for us was that neither of us had much experience in the independent space. All of our experience had been either with our own family offices, which was one component, and then working with, say, the traditional wirehouses. But when we discovered the independent space, which was only maybe about a third of the entire wealth market in the United States or North America, we were really surprised uh, at that it wasn't bigger. Um, and, uh, and it was also very, very fractured. There were so many firms and most of them were small businesses. You know, it sounds like a big number when someone says I managed $500 million or a billion dollars. They sound like big numbers. But when you really look at these companies that are providing those services, they were mostly small businesses. And many times they were three people that had left a wirehouse and it was a 65-year-old, a 55-year-old, a 45-year-old. And we loved that they were fiduciary. We loved that they were independent and advice only. But we didn't find the sophistication that we needed around family office and particularly access to private investments, which we've seen over the years, say, in the endowment space, have become such an important component of any long-term investment strategy. So, uh, so that was really an interesting learning. And this all came together when I was a guest of the Family Office Exchange at a meeting of theirs in Miami, um, their council meeting of a group of families. And when I came in, this gentleman said, 
I'm going to be presenting today the asset allocation model and history of a seventh generation family. This family's origins are from Argentina. They owned a, a brewery seven generations ago. Now they are a global family, hundreds of family members, many billions of dollars of AUM. And the way that they've kept up with this growth in family is this asset allocation model. And he showed seven slides, each generation, how it had changed. First, it was the brewery, 95%, 5% other. Fast forward to the current generation, it was basically in four buckets. Uh, roughly a quarter was in direct ownership of real estate, directly in real estate, not through funds. And it was often with other families. About a quarter of it was ownership of companies. They made their wealth through the brewery and they were comfortable owning companies and they still did seven generations later directly, not through funds and many times in partnership with other families. That was 50% of their asset allocation model was in companies, private and real estate. And then 25% was what we'd call maybe traditional alternatives, funds that we've heard of in the private space. And he said, this is how they learned how to invest directly. By investing in these funds for many, many years, they learned how the GPs did their trade and they learned from that so that they could do some direct investing too. 25% was stocks, bonds, and cash, which was shocking to me that that's what they had uh, developed over seven generations. So you basically had you, had you, your brother, and two other partners, you've all done well, relatively young, and you're basically looking at deals, but it wasn't a, what I'll call a fully structured family office. Was that fair? Yes. It was a family office in name only. Something now that I've learned is very prevalent that, you know, everyone may use the word family office and it has so many different meanings. Um, the first of which, by the way, is most family offices that I meet are actually investment offices. It's funny that they have the word family in them. Um, they're mostly investment offices, but there's so many different types. And in my case, I would call this more of a back office. Uh, so what is a to you, if I said, what's the family office? What, what's the family office? Yeah. So the ultimate family office, which is which I thought was exemplified by this meeting in Miami, what I saw is a world class family office, in my view, would have teams that have expertise in multiple investment classes or asset classes, including real estate, private equity, some exposure to venture capital and secondaries. And then on the public side, have a team that at the minimum can do strategy around super efficient beta and hopefully manager selection and manager diligence for active managers, um, and then have the capability to support a family, all the things. And that's why I think it's so interesting, the word family in family office, like how do we put the family back into the family office? That's a huge deal. So it's communication, it's planning, it's mission and purpose and governance. Um, it's how you talk to your kids about their responsibilities. It's helping the kids to deal with the stress and pressure of having successful parents. There are just many, many things like this wonderful many layers of complexity that come along with family. So being capable around that as well. So to me, it's almost an institution. I mean, a world-class family office would be like an institutional grade investment office and family office. That's so how, how much money do you need, in your opinion, for it to make economic sense to have a single family office, yeah. uh, assuming you're going to invest in direct or private deals? So I used to think that it was a billion. 
um, when I first started with Avi and the investigation and research that led to Crescent. I would say at the launch of Crescent, I thought it was $5 billion. Two years into it, I would say probably closer to $10 billion, And I'll stick with that number now. And it sounds like a really big number, but the reality is to go and do what I described, to field world-class teams that have those types of capabilities, it's expensive, really expensive. And um, the family office that I had many years ago now, I mean, you're talking about, uh, call it at least 15 years ago, it was probably $3 million a year in overhead expense. And that doesn't include the fees that were paid to our Wall Street firm, private bank that was overseeing a lot of it, and then all the underlying manager fees that we were paying. I'm just talking about $3 million in administrative overhead. And remember, that was for what it was essentially a capable back office with the title of family office, didn't have private markets uh, origination and underwriting uh, and management capabilities. So it's expensive and it's getting more expensive to get that talent. The other interesting discovery is that while we would naturally focus on how much does the AUM, does a family have to have to really justify a dedicated full family office and do they want to build a world-class family office or have a hybrid where they do one or two things internally and then outsource the rest? And what's interesting, there's another consideration. And that consideration is as a CEO founder who builds a business over a number of years, then you sell the business and you think that the sale of that, that exit is now giving you capital that allows you to do many different things which could include building a family office, philanthropy, many, many, many things, starting a new business, buying another business. But what's so interesting is a family office is a business. And that comes with the responsibility of providing for the development and training and long-term happiness of the team. You're still running a business. And I think one of the big mistakes that people make is they think, am I big enough to do this? And then if they think they are, they don't realize the burden of responsibility of doing it well. It's significant. It's like running a company and it has many considerations that go along with that. And that's why, sadly, from time to time, we read articles about families that have been taken advantage of in, in very disappointing and troubling ways by bad service providers, bad employees, um, things that haven't worked out because they're not running it with the same skill, ability, talent, and commitment that they ran their family business before they sold it. But you've got friends and I've got friends that are worth $100 million, which is a lot of money, and they start their own family office. So I'm sure you see this all the time. You know, you're talking to your friends, what do you do have a family office? Um, if they're going to have a 100 or $200 million, which again, on a relative basis, that's a tremendous amount of money. Um, but you're basically saying that uh, in order to have a dedicated single family office, it's still not enough because of the overhead. I think so. Um, and, and in order to really field the talented teams that you need, I, I believe that. Now, that being said, um, the I think that you can have you can be good at one thing. I think you can be good at one thing. So you could sell your business as an example and say, you know what, I'm going to go learn I love apartments. I'm going to go learn multifamily. That'll be my thing. I will research it, study it. I will become a good investor in this. That's what I will do. I'll outsource everything else. Back office administration, a diverse portfolio of other asset classes that you will need, 
um, planning, all of that. Um, so I think that you can, at the levels you're talking about, I think you could be good at, at, at kind of one thing. Um, you okay. can be really good at administration. You might be able to be good at administration and one type of investing. And we see this. I mean, there are families. I'm from Baltimore. In Washington, D.C., there are these wonderful real estate families that are well known in, in Washington, D.C., and many of them have family offices. And so they're good at investing in real estate. That's how they created their wealth. And so continue to do that but then they'll outsource the rest of it uh manager selection and the planning and and really how to build a world-class diversified portfolio now you've built crescent to i was with avi i don't know six years ago when you guys just were getting started and he's he i'm like where do you want to be and he's like i'm going to get this to 30 billion dollars and i would you know i know him well i would never get a bet against him but you know that's a bold statement and here you are five plus years later, and you're just about $30 billion. So what's been the biggest surprise for you um, in building this? Because it is, it's different than private equity and you're, you're in a different industry. Oh, much, much, much different. Um, This is, this is unprivate equity. And what I mean by that is that when we started it, First, we started with deep planning around culture and building a brand. What would Crescent stand for? We could have named this business. You know, we look at the RIA business. So many of these RIAs are named after people. So, you know, Becker Diamond, Diamond Becker. Um, we decided we would pick a brand, a trademark name that we could then create values and and uh, a brand around that name. And that we would start with culture, what that we wanted this to be, and then take a very long-term horizon. From the earliest days to the earliest team members that joined, we said to them, we are on a, we are on a 100-year journey. We are on a 100-year journey. And what we meant by that is we are looking at this over the very long term for multiple reasons. The first is, what type of firm would you want to be served by? You'd want to be served by a firm that has that kind of view. Um, you know, private equity is wonderful. That's the industry that I was in. And, and, and certainly a lot of our family wealth relates to private equity. But to me, this is something it's very personal. Um, and the opportunity here, I think, is to build a platform for families over the very long term. So that changed our perspective. I think that it made a difference um, in, in our growth trajectory, which has been um which has been a very significant growth trajectory because the year you're talking about, we finished the first year with about 3 billion in assets five years ago. It doubled to six and then it doubled to 12 and then it basically doubled to 23. And as you said, we're sitting at about 30 billion um, after five, five and a half years. What's been the biggest challenge um, doing this? So I think the biggest challenge is building out the infrastructure that goes along with um, living up to the promise. And so we have a very, very uh, significant uh, commitment to our to our client families and to ourselves. Avi and, and my families were amongst the very, very first uh, clients, my brothers and other friends of ours that first year. So I would say living up to the promise of the brand and the commitment that we've made to develop the very best talent and to be capable in multiple asset classes and to have a very, very rich set of services that can help families lead a better life. We call it life optimized. And that is not just thinking about money, which of course money is important, 
but it's only one part of life and only one part of living a successful and hopefully happy and fulfilling life. So that includes family and dealing with aging parents in a compassionate and effective way and raising hopefully highly functioning children that have their own issues dealing with, you know, in many cases, uh, high performing, uh, competitive and successful parents. So there are just many, many considerations to what it means, I think, as the Stoke philosopher said, to living, you know, a very high quality uh, and fulfilling life. And we try and 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 look at all of those things together. So the word I just the, the word holistic that you're basically a holistic yeah. firm and you're not looking at it just from from dollar signs. Um, right. So you basically you you've created Crescent. Uh, it's got a phenomenal reputation. It you've you're almost at thirty billion dollars. Um, I know you had a tragedy with you know with your daughter um, and your your two sons. I I know are doing really really well. Um, what right now are you most grateful for? Well, one hundred percent grateful for my family, for my wonderful wife Jill, who's been so supportive of my entrepreneurial journey. You know, having a life partner who is supportive in entrepreneurship is is a huge asset. Um, you know, there's a dark side to entrepreneurship, and that is there are many, many families that end up broken in some ways because of the entrepreneurial journey, whether it's divorce or other things. And so I feel incredibly um, blessed and lucky and grateful for my wonderful wife and the two boys um, and for this wonderful partnership that I feel that my family has with the Stein family. Um, our boys are all friends, which is wonderful and have developed a close relationship. And the partnership that Abby and I have is something that I hope is an example for, for, our, for our sons, for our next generation, as to what a partnership can mean, what it truly means in all elements of trust and having each other's back. And, and helping to bring out the best in each other because humans are flawed. There's all kinds of evidence of that everywhere you look. And so having someone that you can work with that can help bring out the best in you is, uh, is something I'm very grateful for. Then do you think, um, let's look forward five, 10 years. How is the family office industry going to change in your opinion? Because right now in general, it is fragmented. It is siloed. It is inefficient. There's very few firms like yours who do the whole package. Where do you see this industry heading in the next 10 years? I, I think that it's good news. I, I'm, I'm actually happy. I feel like so many times, particularly in these challenging times we're living in, many times we have to deliver um, challenging news. I think that actually there's good news. I think the good news is that the professionalization of the family office uh, is is happening. And the support system around families is improving. Crescent would be one example of that, but there are other examples, whether it be in technology to support family offices, or whether it's in service platforms and multifamily offices and other resource consultants, advisors, and whatnot. I think that the professionalization, the trend towards professionalization of family office is absolutely on the move. And organizations and resources. You have your podcast as an example, but there are just many, many examples of how the industry, if you will, or the community, I like that better, is organizing and becoming- So what, what, what inning are we in, in your opinion? I think it's early, early, early. I think it's maybe still first or second inning of the positive news that I'm happy to deliver. It's still early, but I see, um, I see good positive trends that way. 
That being said, I do think that we will see uh, essentially some family offices go out of business. Now, this is a provocative thing to say, but I think that there are some family offices where the founder of the family, the patriarch, if you will, has not done the work to bring the next generation along or to put in place professional management. And when those patriarchs, when those founders uh, retire, lose interest or pass on, um, I think they're going to be challenged. And, and so that so what's interesting, in some ways, it's a little bit of a tale of two cities. The good news is I see so many things that benefit families and family offices, and it's still early days, but it's definitely happening. More resources, more technology, more organization, more community, more sharing of ideas and investments and all of that. But I also think that we're going to see some interesting changes where some families will not be able to sustain the first generation family office because of a lack of planning. Would you agree that the biggest competition many of these family offices have is the ego of the founder? Well, I, I do think that there is an element of that that we see. And certainly some examples are uh, a person that um, was obviously talented, a risk taker, an entrepreneur, and builds an enterprise in a category. Let's just make one up and say it's food. And then suddenly they sell that business. Now they have a family office. And to think that you, with all your experience in food, leadership, building a business, that you could then extend that to every other asset class that you could buy companies and industries that are completely different and have different characteristics than food. And to assume that you would automatically be successful just because you were in that other business, that's not a good assumption. Um, so I do think that ego is a, is a blind spot and can be a challenge. Um, and certainly I recommend humility uh, where, whenever and wherever I can for all of us. Well, you've done a terrific job with Crescent. Um, it's a got an extraordinary reputation and the is is one of the best holistic multifamily offices. I guess and I could talk to you for hours on this, but last question. Um let's go out 20, 30 years. Talk to me about where what your kind of goals and objectives are personally and like where do you want where do you want to be in the next 20 to 30 years? What 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 do you want to happen that would say this was successful, I did it right. Sure. So I'll start with my own family, which I think that Avi's and, and my families were the, the guinea pigs were the, the beginning of all of this. So um, 20 or 30 years from now, my boys will be, um, you know, from four, 48 to 58 years old and, 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 and beyond. And so the first thing is, have we developed a platform that will help that next generation to have been leading fulfilling lives to be capable in whatever their chosen endeavor has been, that career, that choice that they've made, or if they're involved with the family office, hopefully that they become capable participants. You know, I said that I was not a good customer of my own office, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, and so I hope that we will have done a much, much better job now, starting with our own families and then for the, you know, for the amazing Crescent families that we have now. So that would be the first thing. The second would be our leadership. We have amazing next generation leadership that we have been investing in, in their development and, and, and their future. And so the idea that they will be the leaders of Crescent taking this forward, that my family will be a client of the firm and continue to be a client of the firm is, uh, is what I'm thinking about. And that we will have seen this grow to create opportunity for the families that are on the platform and for the teams that are serving those families. That would be an amazing outcome. And certainly my wish 
for the Crescent community. Well, this has been terrific. And again, I could talk to you for hours about uh, a whole bunch of different things. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, congratulations, obviously, on the success you've had as a company, but more important on the success you've had as, as a human being, because you've you've really made a big difference. Well, you're very kind to say that. And, and I would like to say thank you to you because I've seen the commitment that you have to this community, to elevating everyone's game um, and helping them to set higher goals and expectations to become better, better uh, involved and better in, in all aspects. So thank you for the role you're playing in that as well. I appreciate it. Well, I look forward to seeing you soon. And again, thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care, Rob. Thanks for tuning into Family Office World for today's show. Please make sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'll see you on the next episode. Family offices have approximately 10 trillion in assets with another 65 trillion being transferred from baby boomers to the next generation in the next 15 years. This is the largest transfer of wealth in history. Family offices will soon control more money than the entire private equity and venture capital industries combined. The family office world is going to disrupt the way in which funds are raised. The world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. If you look at my generation versus my children's, there's been a bigger change, in my opinion, than any generation, including the Industrial Revolution. We are only in the second inning in the evolution of family offices. Every high-end service provider is trying to break into the lucrative family office market, mostly with limited success. Let Ron Diamond, one of the industry's most sought-after advisors, show you how he and his team have been able to navigate the family office landscape while developing meaningful relationships. I was giving a lecture, a keynote at Stanford about two years ago, and I had five billion-dollar families on the stage. And I asked each one of them, I said, what's a family office and why did you create it? And I had five completely different answers. And nobody was wrong or nobody was right. But that's kind of where this industry is. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation. 10 make it to the third, and five make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. Here's what we need to do. We need to come together as a community and share best practices. Representing over 100 family offices, from 250 million to 30 billion, Diamond Wealth has curated a community of family offices to collaborate and share best practices. We are now ready to share that thought leadership with service providers everywhere. We are at a tipping point, and there is no better guide into the world of family offices than Diamond Wealth.